Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Emily Hamilton, a research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thanks for having me. What is market urbanism? Well, urbanism is just the development pattern of cities or towns. Um, And typically, people who are urbanists or who like urbanism prefer a more walkable, um, denser development pattern that includes a wide variety of land uses. And then markets, of course, refers to the, the market system and prices as a way of allocating resources. So market urbanism is uh, the idea of bringing lessons from market process to the study of cities and how their built environment develops. It seems like nowadays this kind of uh, high density thing is pretty popular. I mean, think of like Brooklyn, uh, you know, people want to go and live in a city where they can walk down the street to the local coffee shop and a cool bar and maybe like a brewery or something. Um, but is that is that how cities have historically been? Like the suburbs have taken a bad rap for a while now, especially among hipsters. Um, but eventually maybe they move to the, the suburbs or maybe our family's moving into these high density places. Well, if we look at prices, there's clearly a lot of demand to live and rent space in high-density places. They tend to be the most expensive parts of the country, so people are willing to pay a lot for them. And if we look at walkability across the, the country as a whole, we see that people are willing to pay more for more walkable parts of the country uh, in general, not just in New York or San Francisco, but in the country as a whole. Uh, whether or not millennials or future generations will choose to move to the suburbs as they get older, uh, I think that likely, yes, uh, as, as people get older they and have families, they likely want more space and somewhat of a different lifestyle. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that um, there's, there seems to be a, a shortage of walkable, more urban places, given how much people are willing to pay for them. How much of that desire to be in walkable, urban, dense places is because the people who move there like dense, urban, walkable environments, and how much of it is just that's where the jobs are? Well, it's certainly both. Um, Going back to New York and San Francisco, um, those are two of the most productive places in the country uh, where incomes are highest, firms are most productive, and economic opportunities are very high for many people. Um, but even controlling for um, labor market opportunities, we still see that within a given metro region, people are willing to pay more to live in more walkable parts of it. So the, the question of our times, therefore, uh, is why is the rent so damn high? Uh, this has been asked ever since uh, – what was his name? What is that guy's name? Yeah, it'll come to me in a second. But, uh, ever since the presidential candidate said this. But why is the rent so damn high? Well, there are many 
local and state regulations that have made it increasingly difficult to build houses, uh, especially in the places where people want to live most. So single family zoning restrictions and minimum lot size requirements work together to mean that in many places, only one house and one household can live on a given piece of land. And uh, minimum lot size restrictions mean that that house has to sit on a yard of a certain size. So in essence, that caps the number of people who can live in a given jurisdiction. And in places where land costs are expensive, it sets the the price of a unit of housing at a, a very high price point. It's become increasingly difficult to build uh, low-cost housing. Um, in the past, lots of low and even middle-income households lived in very simple housing like boarding houses or, um, or simple flats without necessarily even a kitchen and a bathroom in each unit. Now, living standards have increased across the board in many ways since then. So there's no reason to think that many people um, necessarily want that lifestyle. But it's become uh, illegal across much of the country to provide that sort of bare bare bones, dense housing development. Is there an upper limit to density? Because even if we get rid of all of these zoning restrictions and people keep building. Um, it feels like there's there has to come a point where we simply can't pack more people in and the prices are going to keep going up if people want to live there, right? So like is New York City, is Manhattan as dense as a city could get or could we get even denser? Well, Manhattan's population is lower than it was at its peak by quite a bit. So certainly it could be denser. Um, there are definitely limits to how tall it makes sense to make a, a building, for example. And we don't necessarily need um, skyscrapers by any means to achieve a very high population density. Uh, density comes with costs and benefits for both residents and for builders. So building taller and taller buildings becomes more and more expensive. Uh, and there are benefits to living in a, a denser environment uh, in terms of uh, having lots of amenities and lots of people around you, but also costs in terms of traffic congestion, um, all the, all the disadvantages that come with high-density urban living. So there's no reason to think that absent land use regulations, we would see, you know, incredibly dense um, cities or everyone wanting to live in Manhattan. But we certainly know that land use regulations right now are limiting density from what the market would otherwise provide. So in that sense, is it, is it fair to say that we don't really know what the city would look like in a free market because like anything else, uh, people's preferences would reign supreme. So it may look more dense. It may look less dense. Um, is, that, is that a fair assessment? Well, I think we know that the places where prices are very high right now would be denser if land use regulations permitted. But certainly we don't know what a single city or what the country as a whole would look like in terms of development patterns if the market were free to provide what people wanted. It seems like th there's a 
public transportation aspect to this, and maybe not even just public transportation, but but roads themselves publicly built. Uh, we had you know suburbs grow. Kind of the icon of the fifties is this the growth of suburbia going into present day and maybe it's going back the other way a bit, but we have this growth of suburbia, but we also have a growth of the interstate highway system. So on some level, if you were told that you were going to get subsidized transportation in the sense of public roads to get to work, then you have more of an incentive to live in the suburbs. So is it maybe safe to say that to some extent, maybe public roads incentivize the creation of suburbs? Yes, absolutely. Uh, highways played a big part of making it feasible for people to live in a more remote location and drive into their downtown jobs each day. Um, and that, that period of highway building corresponded with a lot of interventions in both transportation and housing markets. Um, the, the FHA began uh, encouraging localities to adopt single-family... The the Federal Housing Administration, right? Yes. Yes, thank you. Um, The Federal Housing Administration encouraged localities to adopt single-family zoning and other restrictions on density that mandated suburban development patterns as highways were making it increasingly appealing and easy for people to live in those suburbs. And at the same time, uh, in many instances, highways were built right through city neighborhoods, um, eliminating neighborhoods in the process and making city neighborhoods uh, less appealing than they had been prior to those highways coming through. What's the drive to institute single family zoning? I mean, it it seems like People who want to live in the suburbs could live in the suburbs. People who want to live in the cities could live in the cities. And it seems unlikely that, say, you know, you're going to just, if you don't have something saying you can't do this in the suburbs, you're going to have someone build a Manhattan style skyscraper, you know, down the street from the single family homes. Like, why, why do we have to say, like, you can only build single family homes here? Yeah, good question. So from the FHA's perspective, when the federal government began insuring mortgages, they thought that requiring single-family zoning would reduce the risk that house prices would fall in suburban jurisdictions so that it would be a safer bet for the federal government to insure mortgages in locations with single-family zoning. Now, in the financial crisis, we saw that some of the more liberally zoned uh, cities, with Houston being the, the prime example, experienced much less of a dip in house prices compared to more regulated um, cities. So the, the wisdom of, of that uh, is, is certainly worth questioning, but that was their motivation. Um, in general, homeowners uh, tend to be very averse to change in their neighborhoods, um, sometimes for, for very understandable reasons. Uh, but today, that's really the force that is keeping these regulations in place, is people want their local governments to say, your neighborhood will never be allowed to change. Um and at the local level, those those homeowner preferences are very salient, and the costs of development are weighted generally much more heavily than the benefits of 
development. But as you said, the the land rent gradient, that means that land is more expensive in center city locations and less expensive the closer you get to farmland, dictates a lot of what the built environment is going to look like. So there are very few locations in the country where it would make sense, even um, just from a financial perspective, to build very densely. Well, going off of Aaron's question there, though, aside from you know, some of the market constraints, the, the, the classic fear of you know taking away zoning. I mean, I live in a you know neighborhood in Pentagon City that's single-family housing, and let's say they take away the zoning, and over the course of say the next twenty years, it becomes house, McDonald's, uh, apartment building, factory, house, and uh, Wendy's. Like that, like that's what the street looks like. Uh, it, it, I mean, that would be a concern for someone who bought a house in 1975 here. Um, is, is that a valid concern of home, homeowners? Well, again, looking at Houston, um, where there is no use zoning, which means that uh, housing can be built in any part of the city, uh, along with restaurants or factories or other uses. Um, there are some instances where you get kind of um, land uses abutting each other that would be very unusual to see in in another city in the U.S., but that's very much the exception, not the norm. Uh, in general, markets tend to dictate that it makes sense for businesses to locate on commercial corridors um, where it's easy for their customers to reach them. And uh, some people might want to live in, um, say, an apartment building, uh, on those corridors as well. But in general, um, it, it won't make sense for a McDonald's to locate in a quiet street off of main thoroughfares uh, because that's not where their customers are going to find it easy to get to. The history of zoning, you mentioned a little bit of it, let's say the Federal, the, uh, federal Housing Administration, but um, I mean, was was zoning a thing in New York in 1830s? I mean, I could see people definitely wanted to keep their neighborhoods in some way. You know, that that drive is was not invented in the 20th century. Uh, so has zoning been with us for quite a while? Yeah. Um, New York is generally considered to have adopted the country's first zoning um, ordinance in 1916. Berkeley, California um, had adopted some restrictions on development even prior to that. Uh, but before those zoning ordinances came into place, um, reading about the history of New York or Chicago development is very, very different um, from what we see today. So back then, um, wealthy families tended to build very fancy houses at what was then the, the outer boundary of the urban development. But quickly, um, as, as demand for housing increased, those houses that high-income households had built would become subdivided and uh, chopped up into apartments that could uh, put that land to better use, housing more people. Um, and then perhaps a couple of decades later, that, um, that house that had become apartments would be knocked down and developed more densely. Um, so cities were, were growing uh, both out and up very rapidly during the, the height of growth rates for those cities. Um, but zoning regulations have, have brought very much a stop 
into that redevelopment process um, in many of the highest demand parts of the country. So we're having like a churn. I mean, I, I'm picturing this that there's a kind of churn that happened in New York, say, in the 1880s, where things changed uses or were, as you said, subdivided into different types of housing situations. Um, and that's that just doesn't happen. I mean, I guess even anecdotally, that, that seems to be just walk around New York. It doesn't seem to change as much as maybe it did in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's uh, an image that I like to use of the area of Manhattan around Washington Square Park from the 1920s. So this is a lower Manhattan neighborhood um, that had been growing and densifying very rapidly until that point. But if we look at that picture from the 1920s, the built environment is very similar today. Many of those buildings are exactly the same as they were then, even though um, demand for for housing and office space and retail space in that location has increased majorly. Why is it hard to get around these regulations or to to get them set aside? I mean, so when we're talking about the suburbs, um, you've got you've got the homeowners, and the homeowners are basically, I mean, they're the only people who live there. Right. And so they're the both the base of voters and the owners of all of the property. And so it's understandable that they're powerful with the local government. But in the cities, it would seem like, say, these developers that would love to put a enormous building that will bring in, you know, a huge amount of revenue and create a whole lot more property taxes than that small house that's being protected by zoning. Um, it would seem like they could flex a lot more muscle. So why, what's stopping them from flexing that muscle? Yeah, great question. So it, it's generally said that um, home voters, which are, are homeowners who dominate uh, suburban politics, are, are the driving factor out there. But uh, until fairly recently, uh, a different process um, termed the growth machine dominated urban politics. And so under the growth machine, real estate interests and business interests are very important constituents and tended to have um, more influence in determining urban real estate outcomes. Uh, and that's still the, the case largely in some parts of the country. But we've seen the home voter dynamic come to become increasingly important in center city jurisdictions as well. So um, there was a, a recent instance of the Upper West Side in New York um, successfully blocking uh, or successfully um leading local uh, political officials to remove a homeless shelter that had been built in their neighborhood. Very much classic suburban uh, nimbyism dominating in, in urban locations as well. In Washington, D.C., there was a, a notorious case of building a new grocery store and apartment 
building in on uh, Wisconsin Avenue up near Cathedral Heights. And the homeowners successfully delayed this project for about 10 years, uh, even though many local officials and the developer very much wanted to see this go forward. Uh, we see suburban style politics uh, delaying projects and in development delaying is is has similar effects to not allowing something to be built at all because it really adds to the costs of building a project and results in less development and higher prices than we would see if projects were able to move forward quickly and predictably. So we're hearing, I mean, there's obviously a bunch of class concerns that come with zoning and but that would also kind of lead us to conclude, especially in America, that it would come with race concerns too, because zoning has a pretty uh, colored history, I guess we would put, uh, when it comes to race too, right? Certainly, um, early land use restrictions that even preceded zoning ordinances limited where African Americans could buy or rent in their city. Um, those types of explicitly race-based um, land use ordinances were overturned by um, the Supreme Court as, as well as private race-based deed restrictions. But Regulations that appear neutral, so single-family zoning uh, may not seem to have a different effect on white households versus black households, but uh, because of the, the legacy of housing discrimination uh, and racial discrimination generally uh, in this country, these regulations that appear to be racially neutral actually affect uh, minority households and limit their housing opportunities more than they do for white households. Is that still intentional? So it sounds like in the past, limits on building and buying and selling of properties were explicitly designed to keep racial minorities out. But is that still the case today, or is it just that you have well-meaning people who are setting up stuff that's in their own interest or they think is in everyone else's interest and it has the unintentional effect of excluding based on race and class? Well, I, I think in, in many cases today, it's unintentional, um, particularly on race lines. I think people do still intend to segregate neighborhoods on class lines uh, by setting a floor of how much it costs to move into a certain neighborhood or a certain jurisdiction. Uh, but we, we also see a lot of, of language that um, appears to be perhaps a thinly veiled or not veiled at all. Um, language about how um, zoning restrictions prevent um, African-Americans and other minority households from being able to afford suburban housing, uh, with President Trump being a prime example of, of saying that single-family zoning is uh, what's pre preventing uh, crime and, and undesirable people from being able to move into suburban neighborhoods. It seems like there's not a horrible argument from the homeowner's perspective for even if it's not single family zoning per se at least the 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 way the neighborhood is zoned when they when they got to the neighborhood is you know a house is 
for most people, the biggest thing they'll ever purchase in their life. And having certain things change in the neighborhood, whether it's low income people coming in or a apartment coming in next door or a factory coming in next door, it creates a, a negative externality in some sense that to, to that homeowner and the price of their, their house. So, uh, is, is that a valid argument that I, that these people are negatively affecting the price of my house and therefore hurting my wealth and, and hurting my quality of living, therefore zoning? Yeah, I think that it's easy to understand why single family homeowners um, like zoning from a financial perspective um, to protect um, the value of that asset. Um, at least they, they hope that's how it will turn out. Um, but these restrictions have huge consequences for the people who aren't benefiting from from this uh, cartel that's preventing increased development in the places where people want to live. So nationally, about half of renter households are rent burdened, meaning they spend 30% or more of their income on housing costs, leaving them without enough income left over to meet their other needs. Um, and it also has macroeconomic effects. Um, so uh, when people can't afford uh, housing in the locations where their best economic opportunities are located, they're going to move somewhere else. And economists have found that this is reducing U.S. aggregate output by more than a trillion dollars annually and resulting in um, workers earning several thousand dollars less per year than what we could expect if people were better able to afford housing in the locations where their their best opportunities are. So while the, the, the status quo oftentimes has benefits for current homeowners, it has huge costs that aren't factored in to um, local land use decisions. Have we seen uh, good examples of successful, because it, it, it seems pretty intractable as we've already talked about that the interests here for homeowners are very high. Therefore, you have a classic concentrated benefit dispersed cost issue where they can organize, like you can put flyers on your neighbor's doors and say, we need to get together and stop this thing from happening. And they're much more likely to come out than the people who want the thing to happen. Um, and then, the, of course, the people who will benefit from it, who don't even know that they will benefit from it, are not going to come out at all. So it seems very intractable once zoning is in place to try and get rid of it. Have we seen any successful efforts to actually change zoning as opposed to not applying zoning to new developments? Have we seen successful efforts to change zoning in existing developments? Yes, I've actually uh, become much more optimistic about land use reform over time. Uh, when I started studying this issue several years ago, I was very pessimistic that um, reform would be feasible. Um, one pattern that we've seen is state legislators increasingly passing bills to set limits on the extent to which local governments in their state can restrict housing development. Um, and, and there's been the most action in this area in the places where um, some of the, the highest housing costs and, and biggest affordability problems are. So California, for example, has passed a series 
of laws that are intended to make it easier for homeowners to build accessory dwelling units. Um, an accessory dwelling unit is uh, a secondary um, apartment that a homeowner can rent out on their property. So it might be a backyard cottage or an apartment above their garage um, or a basement apartment that homeowners um, can rent out uh, or offer to a family member. And in some parts of California, um, especially in Los Angeles, accessory dwelling unit construction has really taken off, um, providing a, a relatively low cost um, housing option for the people who live in these units and increasing homeowners' rights to um, put their property to uh, more valuable use. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that um, state preemption may ultimately be a, a, a big um, piece of the puzzle of solving housing affordability and um, housing affordability challenges, as well as improving opportunities for people to live in the location of their choice. Do you think that COVID will have an effect on all of this? I'm thinking of, say, you know, New York City is very expensive to live in, um, very dense, and has been hit very hard. And there's lots of stories you're seeing about, you know, people leaving New York. Um, and I wonder how many of them, you know, if they leave New York and are still able to do their jobs, you know, they, they don't grow sick of Zoom, um, will say, you know, it's, it's just, it's too expensive. Like no matter what the benefits were, and even if the city's, you know, back to normal, where, you know, I'm not worried about the disease, um, I just I don't need to pay thirty five hundred four thousand dollars a month for a studio apartment anymore to live there. Um, so, do you think that there'll be a a shift towards like building more housing or bringing down costs because people COVID will let people give people an excuse to kind of get out of urban areas? Yeah, perhaps. Um, people have been saying that the um, that distance is dead, that people can work from anywhere due to um, email and Zoom and, and all these other technologies that make it easier to collaborate across distance. Uh, people have been making the distance is dead argument for a couple of decades now. And so far, it has not come to pass. Um, the returns to living in the densest part of the U.S. have in fact been increasing, not decreasing, as the distance is dead hypothesis would suggest. But uh, COVID might might reverse that trend as more and more people have been forced to adopt remote working tools um, and pay those costs that that uh, it takes to get used to working remotely and collaborating um, with your colleagues remotely, uh, that might lead more people to permanently adopt that way of working. Um, and certainly there have been instances of Bay Area companies in particular adopting company-wide policies that allow their employees to live in less expensive locations but continue working for their Bay Area employer. I think it'll be really interesting to to see how long that that trend lasts and whether it accelerates or ultimately goes back to what we 
um, we're seeing prior to COVID um, because there are just benefits to living in, in large and dense locations that can't be replicated elsewhere. Um, for example, jumping um, between firms tends to be easier when you live somewhere where you can have face-to-face connections to people in lots of different firms. Um, and, and learning from from your coworkers and from others in your industry, um, I think has, has face-to-face advantages that we just really can't replicate remotely. But, um, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe I'm wrong and COVID, um, will, will bring about permanent changes to, um, the way that, that people want to live and work. And well, the other things too, um, not to, you know, bring up Brooklyn again as like a classic example, but the other thing too, is just that, as you said, Emily, that they're, you know, you can work, you might be able to work distance, that's fine, but you know, the hip new restaurants and the cool little coffee shops and concerts, for example, a music scene is very, is very hard to have remotely. And I can't see anything replacing those except for just density. And that seems to be what at least a, a sizable portion of young people demand. But that brings up my like, the interesting point that has struck me during this conversation is that in our, political divides that are constantly discussed, especially given this election year, uh, red versus blue states, the, the reality is it's actually urban versus rural. That the uh, And so do you think that in some sense, the, the rise of land use regulations in cities has helped contribute to our political divides? I do. There, There's a lot of interesting research on how population density uh, predicts voting patterns. Uh, and it seems to be that there's a point when um, suburbs reach a certain level of, of density, they tend to turn blue. Um, and people who live at lower population densities tend to be very reliably red, red jurisdictions. Um, and I, I don't know... Um, People who, who study that issue more than I, I'm sure, have uh, more insights on why why that is. But I think it certainly contributes to um, political divisions when um, when people have a, a harder time even relating to the lifestyles of others who live in um, environments that are very different physically, uh, but also very different politically. Well, on one level, there could be a contributing factor, as many people have pointed out, that there's a sort of anywheres uh, versus somewheres d- distinction that the the desire to live in a world where live near near cool restaurants, concerts, uh, you know, new new types of businesses indicates possibly a, a cosmopolitanism that then tra- translates into some sort of political divide. That I mean, it's a self selection, but but it's interesting, like because like. I don't want to live in uh, Salina, Kansas, because it doesn't have so many of the things that I enjoy in normal times when you could go to restaurants and go to concerts. So in the before times, but I don't want to live in Salina, Kansas. For that, but the people who choose to live there are pretty different for me in that regard. So it would seem that that. But the but the interesting about zoning and land use is that it comes in and adds like an artificial constraint. So maybe that there are people who would would want to live in the cities but can't. 
Uh, and so you have high preference people, like people who are very high preferences for cosmopolitanism to the point of paying $4,000 a month for a single bedroom or, or just a, just a, you know, small flat in New York City because that's how much they want to go to concerts and restaurants. Um, and so it even exacerbates it to some extent. I don't know. That, that seems, that seems plausible to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, and the people who really value, um, those amenities or, um, for example, people who are gay place a very high premium on being able to live in a location where there are lots of other gay people. Uh, but when land use restrictions shut off opportunities for people to live in those locations and make them very expensive, um, they, they just may not be able to, um, which is a, a very sad outcome for people who um, can't live in a location that, that meets their um, dating preferences. Have we seen any changes uh, in the, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about is local. We talked a little bit about federal things, but have we seen any changes in like federal housing policies that have maybe helped alleviate some of this zoning problems? Well, during the uh, 2020 Democratic um, presidential primary, many of the candidates introduced um, housing plans uh, that would have created federal incentives for localities to um, reduce the, the restrictiveness of their zoning restrictions. Um, there's a, a grant program called Community Development Block Grants um, that's allocated through HUD, uh, the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, to localities. It's one of the few grant programs that goes directly from the federal government to localities. Uh, and it's also um, intended to support localities that have housing challenges, either in terms of affordability or um, housing quality. So this is kind of a, a natural nexus where the federal government has potentially a, a role to incentivize deregulation at the local level in pursuit of affordability. Um, there, there have been proposals that go a bit further, suggesting that um, surface transportation grants should be tied to um, local zoning reform. And given the history of federal involvement in shaping um, urban infrastructure and um, urban housing policy, I think it, it makes sense um, for the federal government to potentially play a role in attempting to reverse these um, these patterns. But um, land use regulation is very much a, a power that um, belongs to the states, that states tend to delegate to their uh, localities. So I think that big reform that, that really tackles the housing access and housing affordability challenges will likely come from state governments or local governments themselves rather than from the federal level. We've talked, it seems, mostly about this divide between urban and rural and then using zoning to either intentionally or unintentionally reinforce that divide. Um, but is there is there competition between urban areas on these issues? Because you can you know, imagine, right, like a, a city like so you've got the Bay Area, which is crippled by 
housing regulations and anti-growth mindset. Um, and but another city could say, look, it's not that you know we don't we want to keep out the urban stuff, and so we don't care about attracting the people who want urban amenities, but we actually we want them. Um, and so what we can do is we can say, look, we're not going to have these restrictions, which is going to make housing more affordable. There's going to be more dynamism. There's going to be more of the stuff that you want, and we're going to try to attract those people to come here, you know, leave, flee the Bay Area and come to our city. Um, and that seems like something like a, a city could just choose to do. Does that happen much? Well, it, it certainly happens across um, large, um, large distances. So um, Texas, for example, has seen several major California employers um, move there where housing uh, is more affordable and employers don't have to to pay their employees as much to attract them to their firm. Um, and in general, not just Houston, but Texas cities as a whole are receptive of population growth and economic growth and um, neighborhoods changing and accommodating more people over time. Um, but when we're looking at smaller regions like the Bay Area, for example, uh, you get to a point where there is no option that um, provides a place where low or even middle income households can comfortably afford housing without accepting horrendous commutes um, and, and still work in the center of that Bay Area housing market. So the, both um, individuals and um, policymakers have gotten to this point where the, the bottom, you know, first several rungs of the housing ladder are just not an option uh, really anywhere in the region. Um, so policymakers are not incentivized to um, allow um increased housing development and job growth in their jurisdictions uh, because their their homeowner constituents support the status quo and individuals don't have an opportunity to choose um, a location that's uh, receptive of growth and yet still lets them live somewhere where they can access that Bay Area job market comfortably. It seems like in a place like the Bay Area and, and other sort of hubs of innovation and business development, you would see businesses themselves like Google and Apple and Microsoft carry a lot of weight in the Bay Area. And you, you'd think you'd see them throwing their weight around and saying, we literally cannot bring people to live here to hire without – because we you're making us subsidize them essentially, paying them you know, $160,000 a year just so they can have a, a studio apartment in San Francisco. You guys need to change these zoning regulations because it's hurting our business model. Right. Uh, and some tech, tech companies have, um, have thrown financial support behind the YIMBY movement. So that's the yes in my backyard kind of counter NIMBY movement that's um, really taken off in California. Um, so tech companies are, are, trying to change things at the political level um, by, by supporting these organizations that are looking for ways to allow more housing at lower prices. Um, and additionally, some large tech companies are directly supporting um, 
housing affordability by um, by funding housing construction of, of subsidized units to try to improve um, the housing market for um, their employees and the region as a whole. But without reform to land use restrictions, um, subsidies are really not going to allow more people to live in a jurisdiction. Uh, They might allow the people who are already there to live there more affordably, but it's really the supply side that has got to be addressed to allow the the region and localities within the Bay Area um, to accommodate more people. Sometimes you hear uh, as a solution or a possible amelioration of this problem. You hear the phrase inclusionary zoning. Uh, What is inclusionary zoning and and does it work? Yeah. So all these restrictions that limit um, how much housing can be built and and how expensive housing has to be to be um, permitted are called exclusionary zoning rules. So single family zoning, minimum lot size requirements, um, rules that, that shape how much it costs to build a new house are exclusionary zoning. So inclusionary zoning sounds like it should be um, eliminating those rules, but it's not. Uh, What inclusionary zoning means is that new housing developments, uh, typically of a certain size, have to um, include some percentage of units that are affordable to households, making some percentage of that area's median income. So, for example, a new 100-unit apartment building might be required to include 15 units that are affordable to households making 80% of the area median income. And generally, inclusionary zoning programs also come with a density bonus that allows um, home builders to build more housing units than they otherwise would be allowed to. Um, So in that example, perhaps the 100-unit apartment building would have only been allowed to be 90 units without that density bonus. Uh, So that that bonus is intended to offset some or all of the cost of of home builders participating in that inclusionary zoning program. Uh, But I've studied inclusionary zoning in the Baltimore, Washington region, and what I found is that localities that adopt mandatory inclusionary zoning programs um, have experienced faster rising median house prices than they could have expected without that inclusionary zoning program. So it does appear to be a tax on new housing construction uh, on average. Would the ideal zoning regime be one of no zoning at all, or is there any place for zoning of any kind? I don't think that there is a place for restrictions on residential density. Uh, I think that the costs of these restrictions are very large and um the police powers that allow states and localities are intended to benefit the health, safety, and welfare of states' residents as a whole. And I don't think that that residential um, density restrictions achieve that goal. Uh, in terms of, of things like industrial uses, um, perhaps it, it um, makes sense to set limits on the types of externalities that um, – 
that individuals or businesses can cause within urban locations um, and designate um, parts of a, a city where um, more externalities are permitted uh, than others. That's kind of um, the Japanese model of, of land use regulation. Um, low impact uses are permitted in general um, across all or, or most of um, urban localities, but high impact, high externality uses are limited in, in where they are allowed. If you to take work. a step back during this conversation, it just um, zoning seems like a a small like a small policy issue to some extent we talk about these big policy issues like the national debt and healthcare and foreign policy and then we talk about single family zoning and that 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 might be important but you know it's not the biggest thing on the agenda but the more you think about it its effects are profound and underappreciated if you start drawing the tendrils to different things that affect i mentioned political schisms Public schools are greatly affected by this. I mean, I, I assume you probably agree on this, Emily, because you work in the area, but this might be one of the more consequential but underappreciated policies in the country right now. Yeah, I agree. It, it has huge impacts on um, the opportunities that are open uh, to a household in terms of being able to live uh, where they want to locate, being able to access the their preferred jobs or schools, as you mentioned. Um, and then ultimately, uh, they make us poor by preventing people from being able to live um, where where they can be most productive. Zoning regulations um, make the U.S. and the world as a whole better off because we see people who could um, make, for example, huge com contributions in the tech industry not being able to live in the Bay Area. So they move to a second best um, location, uh, Denver, for example, which is uh, a great city uh, with lots of opportunities that many people love, uh, but just simply doesn't um, provide the same opportunities for people um, to be as productive in tech as if they um, lived in, in the center of, of where their industry is based. You call Denver second best, and that's not acceptable. No, <laughs> as, as a Denver native, but yeah, I, I understand your point. So, how does how does uh, how does your city look? Uh, I mean, if you if we talk about whether or not zoning is allowed, uh, but I keep getting the sense that, like in Emily's world, like you 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 know, you've been to my house, you know, like I live in Pentagon City, so I'm ten minutes from a metro in a single family zoning area. This probably shouldn't exist, maybe in your world, or I mean, so things would look pretty radically different if you just let the city develop, correct? Certainly. Yeah, I think it's very likely that, that your um, single-family neighborhood close to a metro um, and, and within easy access of lots of D.C. area jobs would be um, redeveloped if it if it were allowed. Um, and I think that would um, make sense economically um, for more people to be able to take advantage of that that very desirable location than can at present. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if um, urban areas and, and inner ring suburbs were allowed to become denser over time, I think we would see much less demand for um, 
suburban development at the outer fringe of, of cities where commutes are longest, uh, housing costs are, are lower than they are in, um, in more central locations. Uh, but ultimately, house prices are currently propped up in those locations due to restrictions on building elsewhere. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.